0: Thank you, brother Joseph. And with that, we'll call brother Mark forward. I think we're gonna try to record it. So just waiting for the, oh, look at that. Sorry. Talked about two mountains yesterday. You have not come to the mountain which may be touched into a blazing fire into darkness and gloom and whirlwind to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words Words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further words should be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. First moment of introspection is, is that the mountain that you come to? Is that the mountain that you worship at? Is that the mountain that people see when they observe you in your ecclesia, when they observe you in your your family, when they observe you at work? But you have come to Mount Zion. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriad of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Have we come to the mountain that Jesus calls us to? When people see you in your daily life, when people see you in the Ecclesial life, do they see you at the mountain that Jesus called you to? And uh, we've been considering the the life of of Joseph, and several people came up and, and brought up the fact that all the Beatitudes are manifested in the life of Joseph. He was a peacemaker, he mourned, he was persecuted, he was poor in spirit, he was meek. How did he do all that without a list of rules? He he didn't have the command, he didn't have the 10 commandments, he didn't have most of the Old Testament. How was he able to show forth Christ's character without checklists? Somehow he did. Somehow, even then, Joseph came to this mountain. Now, we have to balance this a little bit. What, What does it mean to come to this mountain? Does it mean that everything is just always sweetness and light if you read the next verse in hebrews chapter 12 see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking for if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven in the last verse in this chapter our god is a consuming fire We are being offered this wonderful vision. The fact that this is wonderful means that if we reject it, we face an even greater consequence than those who rejected the law of Moses. Jesus starts to bring this up in Matthew chapter 5, when we we saw the verses on salt and light, right? It's all fine to talk about spiritual concepts, but if people can't taste Christ in you. If people can't see Christ in you, if you've successfully hidden it so that none of your coworkers or your neighbors know that there's anything different about you, then what was the point? Right? It becomes all academic. Academic is not enough. Academic is just the starting point. And then we had the kicker. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And we have to put ourselves in that historical context and say to an ordinary merchant, to an ordinary, you know, shoemaker in Israel, the Pharisees were the pinnacle of religion. They knew more than anybody. They tried harder more than anybody. They they taught, right? They were the teachers. They were the experts. And Jesus is saying, what they're doing, which you think is so far above you, is not enough. If all you do is what they do, you're not going to be in the kingdom. And so that brings us to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. And Jesus starts a process of seven ways to be more righteous than a Pharisee. And the first one is, thou shalt not kill. One of the Ten Commandments. Okay, remember, Jesus is subtly, continually making a a comparison and a contrast with the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Now, Jesus tells us that just not killing people happens to not be good enough. Right. But now we like the law of not killing people because it's very measurable. And I can go to bed at night and I can tell myself today I did not kill one single person. Right. Check box. I'm righteous. I have fulfilled the Mosaic law. Right. I have become as righteous as the most righteous Pharisee with respect to this law. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Misunderstanding. That was just the starting point. You can take this concept and push it all the way. How are your relationships with other people? You know, when I was a, when I was a, a, a young man in, in the faith, I had visions of, you know, battling people over the Trinity and, and having these great, you know, um, intellectual skirmishes with, with people of other faiths. And what I've realized is the hardest thing in my walk has been getting along with other people, keeping relationships positive, healthy, constructive. That is so hard, right? We, we underestimate how hard that is. And um, yes, yeah, this, this Ezra and Zion, back when they used to be able to walk along together in all hands, that's okay, there's still hope, relationships. Um, <laughs> But Jesus says, you know, if you go to present your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has ought against you, you put that aside. Now, we don't we don't do gifts before the altar in quite the same way. But what we can say is there are ecclesial functions and ecclesial obligations. There are ceremonial parts of our religious life. And if we are putting those ahead of our personal relationships we are in big trouble. We think it's important to do the things of the ecclesia, and it is, but it's not as important as your relationships with other people. And if there's something you can do for your relationships, that wins over your ecclesial responsibilities. If there's something you can do for your family, that wins. That's counterintuitive. That's not what our expectation would be. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now we have, you know, David and Bathsheba, you know, Samson and Delilah. Jesus brings up the eyes in this chapter. Um, I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And, and, and we see with David right? He was up on the palace and he looked and we see in the, in the story of Samson, he looked and it set off a, a chain of events which resulted in actual you know overt sin which was undeniable and visible to everyone. And Jesus is saying, okay that happens and that's terrible and that should never happen, but you can fail in this way and it can all just be in your head. Right? It is not enough to just do what the 10 commandments say. You have to elevate your game. And there's an equivalence here, which is absolutely terrifying, right? Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her in his heart. And when we assess the relative weights and severities of sins, like do we put those in the same category? The people who have committed adultery and the people who have lusted in their minds. Do we rank those the same? Because Jesus is putting those in the same category. Do we treat the people in our community who have failed in this way equally if they have failed in either of the ways? It's a little bit unsettling. And then he says, if your right eye makes you stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you, and this one I struggle with, because I've been walking around camp, and I've, I haven't seen anybody missing any eyes, and yet here is a commandment of Christ, and here is a righteous community dedicated to, to the service and, and the study of scripture, and somehow we, we read this verse, and we automatically assume that, well, oh, Jesus can't mean that literally. Yes, I suppose, but he he did say it and he said it for a reason. And if you had to actually look at it technically and say, look, I'll trade you. I'll make a trade with you. We're going to pluck out your right eye and, and you're in the kingdom. Would you take that trade? I sure would. I'd be in them. I mean, like if, if Jesus Christ showed up to you today and said, Look, step through, like it's gonna cost you your right eye. Go through that door, you'll be in the kingdom. I think most of us would take that. And that's what Jesus says. That's that's what it's saying. Like, are you willing to do that? You say you're willing to do that, and yet here I am looking, looking, none of us have done that. Okay. So what I think Jesus is doing here is what I call emphasis by extremism. And this is going to come up over and over in here. And I'm not sure. I'm actually not either saying. I don't think Jesus means for us all to be plucking our eyes out. But what he is saying is you must take radical, counterintuitive action against sin in your life. It isn't just enough to say, oh, I've I've just this little checkbox. No, you have to do things that people in society would consider absurd, right? Like if we started walking around town, you know, and most of us were missing eyes, people would go, that is a crazy cult. That is a (laughs) crazy cult, right? But Jesus says crazy stuff, and we forget about it because we're so used to it, right? Jesus said, eat my flesh. And we're like, oh yeah, no, that's great. We do that every Sunday. No, people walked away from Jesus because that is an absurd concept, right? You're a religion of cannibalism. I just that is so bizarre, right? But Jesus says it's bizarre. He's trying to get your attention. He's trying to tell you, look, take this seriously. This is a radical religion. This isn't just the walk around every day and, 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 and you know fit in with everybody else. So, if we're not going to pluck out our eyes, you know, if, if you're on a diet, this should not be on your counter in your kitchen, right? Because you know that if you're on a diet and this is on the counter in your kitchen, you'll be okay for an hour and you may be okay for two hours. And if you're strong, you may be okay for six hours. But if this is on your counter, when you're on a diet, it is inevitable that you will succumb. It is impossible for you to sustain your self-will long enough indefinitely. And this speaks to to what Brother Nathan talked about last night, right? Like, if we think of these as weeds, right? If you just leave them there and you just ignore them and you don't proactively try to remove the things from your life that cross-contaminate, then you're going to wake up one morning and and it's just, it's all going to be weeds. And there's a... um... Well, let let me jump to this next one first and i'll come back to that we have anger and we have lust right the the two commandments that jesus is leading to and in each case we have a domino effect right where you had a small thing that turned into a bigger thing that turned into a bigger thing and eventually in somebody's dead or a marriage is destroyed so this is the weeds concept catch it early right? If you don't catch it early, if you don't take it seriously when it's small, you're going to have a disaster when it's big. And uh, I read a book, uh, I highly recommend it. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow by a Jewish man named uh, Daniel Kahneman. And they examined people who are in the midst of, you might call it lust or rage or like when somebody's lost their temper you know if you have kids you see a kid throws a temper tantrum okay that same thing happens to us even as adults it just manifests a little bit differently but if you let your anger cross a certain threshold you become entirely unreasonable and so they 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 test these people who are in the midst of anger and they make statements that are absurd that in their normal selves, they would, they would never do such a thing. And this is why you get people um, who have temporary insanity, right? They don't get the same consequence for a murder when you're under the, the influence of passion. Because there's an understanding in law that once you're under the influence of passion, you basically become an animal. And in their research, they said, well, what can we do? What can we do to help these people so that when they're in their passion, they don't go off. And, and, and do these terrible life-destroying things, whether it's adultery, whether it's murder or violence. People do this. How do we stop them? And they tried all kinds of things, and what they discovered is there is no way to stop. Okay. Once you're in that rage, once you're in that passion, you are literally unreasonable. You cannot be reasoned with. And any of you have tried to reason with a child in the middle of a temper tantrum? No, there's nothing you can say, you can't explain. The only thing you can do is wait, wait for this moment to pass because your brain is literally in a different state. And it's absolutely terrifying because there's, there's nothing we can do to even, we can read scripture, we can do whatever. If you let yourself get into a passion, whatever kind of passion, you become a different creature. The only solution is don't go there in the first place. Don't let yourself be built up into anger. Don't let yourself be built up into lust. That's what Jesus is trying to tell you. He's like, stop this early. Don't try to wait till the last minute and then say, oh, no, I'm not going to commit adultery. It wasn't really adultery. You got to catch it early. So. There's clearly a pattern developing here, but let, let's learn some of the lessons from just these two first ones. Proper relationships are crucial. Slippery slopes are slippery. It matters, right? Catch things early. We didn't actually coordinate the evening program. I'm really grateful for that last night. Anything. Words matter, right? Whoever has said you fool, you know, has anybody ever said anything unpleasant to anybody? Oh, yeah, everybody. Drastic action is called for. We belong to a radical religion. If our lives are not radical and unintuitive and counterintuitive to an observer, then we're not doing it right. So let's come back to the theme. How does this, you know, how can I be more righteous than the Pharisees? So Jesus, as you see, is, is, is contrasting. You have heard, but I say to you. Right. So he, he's putting the two concepts together. And the first thing he's bringing up is that we see the law as a limit, right? There's a line, and you should stay on this side of the line. But what happens when you have a line, right? You walk right alongside that line. And Jesus is telling you, don't do that. When there's a line, you turn up, you, you go the you know, opposite way of the line. You try to stay as far away from the line as possible, We're not just trying to cross the line, we're trying to cross the line and then keep moving indefinitely. The other interesting point Jesus makes, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable. Everyone who is angry with his brother and everyone in this room has been angry with his brother. Everyone who looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery, everyone. When we think legalistically, we have this little hierarchy of who's done which sins and which ones are worse than others and and where we are and how we compare and you all know it, we all know it, we track it. It's not the way Jesus thinks. When Jesus looks at this room, he says, everyone has committed murder. And everyone has committed adultery. You're sitting in a room full of murderers and adulterers. How does that affect us? And so we have a really interesting com- concept that Jesus puts forward here. That keeping the law is not actually the definition of righteousness. Right? The Pharisees have been, have been approaching their religion this way. And he says, no, you can do it. You you can do those two Ten Commandments and not be a righteous person. And the problem, I had to get at least one sort of computer-ish kind of slide up here. But um, this is binary, one or zero, right? And Jesus is saying righteousness is not binary. It's not like true or false, black or white. Righteousness, and and this is a very featureless slide. but actually what we have down at the bottom is complete darkness. And what we have at the top is complete light. And righteousness is up there, and we are not. We are somewhere in here. And each of us are in different places and each of us in different aspects of life, maybe in anger control, some of us are over here and maybe in gluttony, some, some of us are over there, maybe in love, some of us are over here right it's, it's you you're never done with some scriptural principle you're just somewhere on this scale. And you still have somewhere to go. There's another. Sort of philosophical technical question here which is is jesus establishing a new law we have the law of moses and it's described on the ten commandments and we just read a whole bunch of commandments a whole bunch of additional commandments on top of the commandments that are in the law of moses is this a new law is this law 2.0 yeah, that's a second computer joke. Deuteronomy it says, Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it. That's interesting. The law itself suggests that you shouldn't add to it or take from it. In Romans, it says, The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death. So the question is, did the tablets that came down from Mount Sinai, did they have the wrong words on them? It's a weird thought experiment. But you go, if if we had taken the words from Matthew chapter 5 and the other commandments of Christ, and we had chiseled those onto the tablets way back when, and Moses had come down with those words on the tablets, would it have all been fine? Would that have solved the problem? And instinctively, you, you know, no, right? Like that wouldn't have eliminated the need for Christ. So there's an interesting thing that we have to wrestle with here. Romans 8.3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. You see, the problem isn't the words on the tablets. The problem is the flesh and the flesh is still with us. No matter what words you write on the tablets, the flesh is still here. And and we have to remind ourselves of that because sometimes we come across problems in our community and in our lives. And we think to ourselves, you know what the solution to this is? We need to write something down on a piece of paper and we need to post it on a wall and all of our problems will be gone. It doesn't work that way, right? The problem is in the flesh. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. If there had been a law given, which was able to impart life, if such a thing existed, if such a formula of words existed, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Okay? If there had been words that could have done it, God would have put those words on the Ten Commandments, and that would have solved the problem. But the problem is laws and words cannot solve it. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Romans 10 verses 3 and 4. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We're gonna read a lot more in this chapter. We're gonna encounter a lot more commandments. We're gonna encounter ordinances and statutes in all the same sense that we find them in the old testament but we have to recognize this is not law of moses 2.0 there is a qualitative difference between the commandments of christ and the commandments of moses so let's jump to the next one let him divorce Verse 31. It was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now this one's interesting because if you actually look through all the different sections in this chapter, pretty much all of them, if you if you look at them sincerely, you'll go, it is impossible for me to fully live up to the things in this section. You know, is it can I really never be angry? Can I really never lust? Can can my yes be yes really like every single time? Like there's a whole list of impossible commands in this chapter. And this one kind of jumped out at me as like, I think I can get through life without divorce. You know? And I have it easy. (laughs) Easy for me, whether whether Melissa feels the same way, maybe. (laughs) Um, But one thing to understand here is the cultural context. When the subject of divorce comes up uh, elsewhere in Matthew, and Jesus says, no, divorce, not a good, not a good thing to do. And his disciples, these righteous men say, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. These are the disciples of Christ, considering life without divorce. And they're like, I would never get married, right? The foundation of marriage for them was divorce in that sense, right? Like the reason I am willing to marry you right now is because I have the option to bail whenever is necessary, right? And what's more, by the law of Moses, all I need to do is sign a piece of paper on the dotted line, right? It is there. It is permissible in the law of Moses. I can be righteous in the law of Moses by signing this piece of paper and I can move on to another woman if I want to. Perfectly legal in the law of Moses. Okay. So luckily we don't have quite the same cultural context, but what Jesus is saying here, the the reason he's bringing this up is because we do similar things. You can use law to legally sin right and so if 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 you're married you know if, if this man is married to that woman and this man decides that he would rather be with that other woman well if he just runs off with her it's adultery and that's against the law and he's an evil man but i have two pieces of paper here and if you sign on the dotted line on the first one yeah and then now you come sign on the dotted line over here we're all righteous that's that's the law. And by law, they would have been righteous by law in that circumstance. And we look at that, we say, that's insane. And that's what Jesus is telling them. Look, this is insane. You're filling out paperwork, and you think that that makes you righteous. If the intention behind your activity is not divine, then I don't care if you follow the law. I don't care what the law of Moses says. Right? If you are pursuing another woman, that's it. it. It might be in your head, it might be legalistically. No, it's all wrong, even when you do it legally. And Bear in mind, again, that in the culture of the time, they would have considered this an impossible command. They would have said, wow, that's just going to destroy the fabric of our society. just re-emphasizing I guess what I I just said righteousness is not does not mean or keeping the law does not mean righteousness right you can fill out the paperwork and and you cannot be righteous we can do this in our ecclesial life too right like you can show up you can do your readings you can do all the sort of technical things and that does not mean righteousness Um, okay let me jump to the next one number four you shall not swear falsely. As again, it's an interesting in the context of, of marriage, right? Where it, like your yes be yes and your no be no. You said you're going to marry this uh, person, you know, till death do you part. That's what you said. Your yes should be yes. You shouldn't go back on that, right? It's not just oaths. I mean, again, culturally, we're not big into oaths. That's not things that we normally do. So that's not a big imposition to us. But is our yes always yes? And is our no always No. No. Right? We constantly equivocate. We constantly do shades of gray. Now, why is this so important? Well, often when we agree to things, we actually have a hidden list of subject to's. Now, I don't know how many people have bought a house. You have experienced this and you have a contract and you make an offer, right? You write up a document and you say, I will buy your house subject to inspection. And subject to financing, and subject, to, and it's a legal document, so you itemize it. So you're saying, Yes, I'm, I'm gonna almost buy this house if everything else works out correctly. And the problem we have is that we make a lot of yeses with hidden lists of subject to's. And our baptism might be one of those yeses, right? We get baptized, we're saying yes. I want to follow God to death or the kingdom. Is it subject to something? Is it subject to having good health? Is it subject to belonging to a nurturing ecclesia? Is it subject to your spouse treating you perfectly? Is it subject to the safety and well-being of your children? Like... Is, is it subject to not having abject poverty? Is it subject to not dealing with addiction? Like, do, do we have a long list of subject tos? And, and I think the short answer is we do. I think we all have subject tos in our marriages, in our, in our baptism, in all of our commitments. And it's a lifelong task to uncover them all and try to eliminate them from our spiritual contracts. Right? Although the fig tree shall not blossom, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. Right? We see this all over scripture. The whole Beatitudes, right? Like you are blessed even when you're poor. You are blessed even when you're persecuted. Right? If you're rejected by society, does that weaken your commitment? It shouldn't. And if it does, you had it all along as a little subject to rider. But we like hidden subject twos. They they bring us value. And I want to present it in the concept. If you sold pizza, right? And I said, okay, I'm going to sell you a pizza and you give me $20 and I'm going to deliver a pizza, you're expecting the whole pizza, right? But if I actually have a bunch of subject twos, they may or may not get the pizza, or you may or may not get all of the pizza. And you only find out later. Well, but I've already got the $20. Right? So for me, as the person saying, yes, I'll give you the pizza, I get all the benefit. And then you later on, when you only get half the pizza. Well, we'll worry about that later. Right? So when we commit to things, and don't deliver on our commitments, we are stealing, right? It's a form of stealing. It's like somebody ordered a pizza, and you only gave them half a pizza. And we do this all the time in little subtle ways. We have to live up to our commitments. So, a joke I found online. Parents, it's okay to say no to your children. They won't explode, true story. <laughs> and the reason I put that there is because it's your no-no and children have an uncanny ability to know when you're no it's not actually no right and so and you and you're like they ask you for something and you say no and then they ask you again and you say no again and then they ask you again. like why do they keep asking me but it's because it's it's a no with some subject twos right and they're trying to figure out what are the subject twos this time because last time you said no twice and then i got it so maybe the key is to is to get you know three no's out of that it's so hard like It is so hard to be thoroughly consistent in our commitments. Interesting question of control here. There is an arrogance to commitment. Now we sometimes say God willing, right? And we should say it more often because Jesus says, take no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. That's massive. The earth it's still massive, but smaller by Jerusalem. Now it's just a city. Nor you shall take an oath by your head for you cannot make a single hair white or black, right? We start thinking, oh, you know, heaven, like the smallest thing, you can't even control the hair on your head, right? We make these commitments foolishly because we assume that we, we can deliver, right? If your commitment has subject tos, you should clarify them up front. I'll be there, God willing. I'll be there, all being well. My Uncle Charlie, always used to say all being well. And I try to inject that wherever I can, which is I'm gonna make an effort to deliver, but I am accepting my limitations. I'm accepting that things may happen which prevent me from delivering. Psalm 15 verses one and four. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? There's a number of other attributes, but an interesting one here. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. You made a commitment. It is now ridiculously inconvenient to keep that commitment. How far do you go? It's just like, no, nah, sorry, not gonna work, you know baseball game is on, you know, or the, you know, a hockey team made it to the next set of the, uh, you know, of the Stanley Cup. so I'm not going to be able to make that anymore. Like, what kind of things derail our commitments? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. One thing to keep in mind that uh, outsiders like to Portray this as a savage uh, statement of the law of Moses because it feels so violent, right? Of taking out people's eyes. This is actually one of the most clear statements of fundamental human rights that you will find in ancient literature. Because I can tell you that in ancient culture, it was not an eye for an eye. If you took out my eye, I kill you, right? And it all had to do with your social status. If you're a slave, And you hurt me, and and even less than an eye, you're dead, right? And it goes all the way, like, maybe your whole family's dead. It's completely, this statement in, in the law of Moses is saying, everybody is equal. Your eye, my eye, all eyes are worth the same. Okay, and they didn't around, they didn't run around at the time of Moses was plucking people's eyes out either, right? There was a, a compensation. If you cost somebody their vision, you must compensate their vision. Everybody's vision is worth the same. But then he goes on to say, do not resist the one who is evil. And that is a really difficult statement. Do not, how do you live that one perfectly and completely? Do not resist the one who is evil. Like, you, are you just supposed to fold, you know, and, and, uh, and give in to everybody? Whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with them Do. How do you run a business with that, right? Give to him who asks of you. Do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. And we, we do that a little bit. how many of us can live this oh can I borrow your tractor might bring it back or I might not but like this is this is again it's it's extreme it's absolutely extreme is that really what Jesus says okay can I have your house can I borrow your house oh just yeah my children and I I guess we'll just go camp in the backyard if that's okay with you because it's now your house like we can't lose sight of the extremism of these statements. These are radical statements. Now, just because they're radical, does that mean we don't we don't try to live them at all? No, Jesus is saying, I'm telling you that this is you, you've got a long way to go, right? The distance to righteousness is further than you would ever imagine. Peter. 3 verse 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called to this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. You know, we have the story of the, of the Good Samaritan. The interesting thing here is he speaks of the blessings on the undeserving, right? That God makes it rain on the just and on the unjust. Are we selective in how we love people? Or are we like God, where we, we're just willing to be loving to everyone? We've had six so far, but there's a pattern here. And I propose to you that this, these six is not the complete list. Jesus isn't saying, oh, now, now the book is closed. Jesus is saying this pattern, this concept of going to an absurd extreme is something that you can do with everything concept in commandment, right? Oh, tithing. The law says 10%. That's just the starting point, Jesus would tell you, right? 10% is just where you start. Don't think you've achieved something because God gave you 100 and you gave him back 10. Oh, how noble of you, right? Like Try for eleven, and then when you've got eleven, you're gonna know, try. Like you can go, and you say, "But that's impossible." How far? Can...? Yeah, yeah, it is interesting, right? The Sabbath concept. Yeah. Do you take the rest? Sacrifice, hospitality, humility, praise, modesty. I heard about it this morning. Honesty, generosity, study, service, prayer. Take your pick. Work on it for a year right? You can just keep going. And then we start to feel that everything keeps loading up, right? Oh, the first one was hard, not being angry. I was kind of stuck on the first one. And then he followed with uh, five more. And then he says, you therefore must be perfect. Now, I want you to really try to feel how radical this statement is. This is a commandment of Christ. You vowed to serve him and he commands you to be perfect. In what way, in case you wanna quibble about what exact definition of perfect human, Well, let me tell you how. You need to be perfect in the same way that God is perfect. So if you think that there is some kind of moment in life where you're gonna be able to sit down and say, oh yeah, I got that, right? Today was a good day. I, I did it. I, I got all the, checkbooks, the check boxes today. Jesus is giving us the seventh challenge, the seventh impossible challenge in this chapter. Now, we had our shades of gray. What do we do with our shades of gray? We're all starting in different spots, in different parts of our discipline. And what Jesus is telling you is that your lifelong task is to push that arrow from darkness to light. Wherever you start, and until the day that you die, you need to move that arrow. And what this is here is an imaginary line drawn by the Pharisees that says, well, that is the line of legal righteousness. Right? And and look, I'm above it. And you're not. So I am a better person than you. And oh, I used to be above it, but I fell behind it. So now I'm not going to be in the kingdom and I'm a bad person. This is the pharisaical legalistic mind. It's inside of each of us. What Jesus is telling you is don't worry about the line. The line is in your head. The line is imaginary. This is the line. There is a line. It just so happens the line is up here where you can't see it. That's how righteous you have to be if you're going to be in the kingdom of God on the basis of your righteousness. Now, I've ranted long, so let's see how I can wrap this up quickly. But I can't get away, sorry, from Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Maybe I'll just narrate it. It's a story. You guys know the story of the rich young man. He comes to Jesus, and he says, what should I do to be righteous? And Jesus says, well, you look like a smart guy. You know the commandments. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Do all off. stuff. And the rich young man says, I've done that. Right? He says, aha, I'm here. I got over the line. And then Jesus looks at him, and, and I just, it gives me chills he looked at him you can almost see jesus lots of people around somebody says oh i have a question about whatever and the guy says no i've done that and jesus going you've done that and he looks at him and he loved him So it doesn't say very there's not very many people that it say jesus loved like specifically individually we know he loved humanity he looked at this man and he loved them and he said oh good for you Just one more thing, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, right? What did Jesus do for that man that he loved? He erased the line. He gave that man a goal that he was going to wake up every morning and go to bed every night and look at every one of his possessions and say, I didn't, I, I didn't pull it off. I, I didn't achieve my own righteousness. How does Jesus love somebody by giving them a goal that they can never attain? How is that love? But it is. And so this is what we have to consider this morning. If you are playing a game that you cannot win, you can't win this game of righteousness. You will never win this game of righteousness. If that's true, what do you do when you get up in the morning? Why even bother? Right? If I can't do it, why even bother? And what I propose to you is that Jesus is trying to give us an approach to righteousness that is less legal and more like a craftsperson, right? If if righteousness is your craft, like a person who loves pottery, they they never reach the pinnacle of pottery. A person who loves music never reaches the pinnacle of music, right? When something is someone's passion and craft, they get up in the morning and they pursue it, not because they're going to get seven points out of wood. It, no, it's because they love the thing for its own sake. They love righteousness for its own sake. Jesus wants you to be a craftsman of righteousness. Where you just, you couldn't imagine waking up in the morning and saying, no, I'm gonna, I'm going to honor the flesh today today's a flesh day, like you would be horrified by that, you would go, that would be absurd, right, no, 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 you were good all week, right, so you get to take Friday off, you're right, you were extra righteous, you know, you worked extra, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, so now you can take Friday off from righteousness, right, if it's a quota, if it's an amount, if it's something we're measuring, you could maybe do that, and, and, and like, it's absurd, if you are a follower of Christ, because In your heart, you want to be like Christ, no matter who's watching, no matter who's counting, no matter where you might be on some scale, you're going to wake up in the morning and say, I want to be perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect.